From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. Elizabeth Holtzman was first elected to Congress in 1973. Soon after, as a member of the House Judiciary Committee, she became rapidly familiar with a hitherto obscure procedure for addressing presidential misconduct, impeachment. In this talk, first delivered at a meeting of the Institute in March 2006, Holtzman discusses her experience and the legacy of high crimes and misdemeanors in the Oval Office. Her talk remains as pertinent today as when it was first delivered at the height of the war in Iraq. Uh, impeachment. I never thought that uh, when I was in law school that that was a subject I was going to ever have to learn. It certainly wasn't taught to us at that time. Uh, we didn't even get into the Bill of Rights when I was in law school, but definitely the impeachment clause wasn't part of it. Um, but unfortunately, after being on the House Judiciary Committee, it's an expert during the uh, Nixon impeachment hearings, it's an expertise that I uh, had to acquire. As I've said before, voting for the impeachment of Richard Nixon, even though the evidence was overwhelming that he committed high crimes and misdemeanors and that he um, definitely warranted impeachment and removal from the uh, presidency, was one of the most unpleasant things I've ever had to do. Uh, I disagreed with his policies fiercely, but I didn't want to see a president of the United States engaged in the conduct that he did, um, flagrant and persistent violation of the laws of the United States. I just go into a little bit of the constitutional history because it's important to understand it. The framers um, created a democracy with a elected legislative branch and an elected presidency, but they understood, having just lived under a monarchy, that even though the president could be changed after four years, that there was that four-year period of time in which somebody would take that power of that office and run amok, would become an oppressor. People of this country could violate the laws and could engage in conduct that would require his, maybe someday her, removal. The impeachment power has been used rarely in this country. As you um, will remember, uh, President Johnson was subjected to it. It was a very politicized process. Uh, impeachment was held in high disfavor after that. And um, it came about again during the Nixon era. Just from a political point of view, I want to say to you, give you a time frame for the Nixon impeachment. Because impeachment didn't happen like this. We're not into a, you know, we're all sort of into a society in which everything happens instantaneously. But it's really important to understand the timeline for the Nixon impeachment. Watergate break-in took place in June 1972. The cover-up was so successful that higher-up involvement, I don't mean Hunt and Liddy, but I mean going way up to the top of the Republican Party and the president. Nobody really breathed any word of that until January or February 1973. And that was when Judge John Sirica smelled something wrong with the Watergate burglars who were all pleading guilty and said something is amiss here. And he imposed enormously high sentences. And then one of the Watergate burglars broke um, McCord and told him that they were higher ups. Until that point, it had been masterfully covered up. Then there were Senate hearings. John Dean testified in April 1973. The word impeachment was not spoken. We are, we're coming up to a whole year 
the word impeachment was not spoken. The first time an impeachment resolution was introduced was in July 1973, more than a year after the Watergate break-in, based on the revelations that President Nixon had bombed Cambodia unilaterally and secretly, hiding from the Congress of the United States and the American people that he had been bombing a neutral country. Even that did not trigger a response from the Congress. Now we are in October, almost a year and a half after the Watergate break-in. We now have a special prosecutor who's investigating. Richard Nixon fires the special prosecutor because he insists on getting the tapes that will show, may show, do show ultimately, but he didn't know that at the time, but may show whether Richard Nixon himself was complicit in ordering the break-in. Richard Nixon fired the prosecutor, and that mobilized the American people. And the people of the United States said, we cannot have a president stopping a lawful investigation. The president is not above the law. This is criminal activity. Enough is enough. Congress, you have to act. So we're talking about almost a year and a half before Congress takes any action, and certainly many months after the revelations of Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Dean are made public. Impeachment didn't happen right away. And then once the impeachment inquiry started, after the Saturday Night Massacre, the actual, it took some time before the council was hired for the House Judiciary Committee, before the, the committee did all of these research and investigation, what is a high crime and misdemeanor, what is impeachment, what does the Constitution mean, whoever heard of these terms, hadn't been used in the country for 100 years. Um, all of that's accumulating the evidence. So it wasn't until July of 1974, two years after the break-in, that the impeachment hearings were held and of course, the, the fairness of those hearings, the fairness of the process, that people could see and hear the evidence, the way in which the committee members conducted themselves. And uh, there was an overwhelming vote, bipartisan vote, for the impeachment of Richard Nixon. He subsequently resigned after a tape uh, came out showing his involvement in the cover-up. And uh, all the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee said he should be impeached. At that point, it was clear that he would be almost unanimously impeached by the House, and if not unanimously, almost unanimously uh, removed in the Senate. There was no hope. And the Republicans put terrific pressure on him to get out because even though they, there would have been a total rout in the November elections had he stayed and fought. It would have been a losing battle, but they would have been a total rout of the Republican Party. And they saw that, and they put terrific pressure on him to resign, and he did resign. And he was pardoned. Okay. We all thought in that impeachment process that this would be the <laughs> first and last time we would ever have a president who warranted impeachment and would have to be removed from office. None of us ever envisioned that we would be confronting this issue again. We did confront it during the Clinton impeachment, which was, by way of contrast, triggered by a special prosecutor, again, but he was the one who recommended impeachment. The American people were never supportive of this, ever, and the process was totally partisan. It was an effort, in a way, to use the impeachment process totally for political purposes uh, in order to engineer a political coup. It did not work. 
impeachment probably is only going to work when you have a bipartisan process and when the American people can be convinced, therefore, that it's not an effort simply to undo the results of an election, but that the conduct of the president is so serious and grave that he needs to be removed from office. The standard for impeachment is the president can be removed for treason, which is defined in the Constitution. It's the only crime that's defined, which means giving aid and comfort to your enemies. Bribery, I guess I didn't, need, didn't think that needed a definition. And then other high crimes and misdemeanors. Other high crimes and misdemeanors needs to give us a little bit of pause because it really is an archaic term. We think we understand what that means, a high crime and a misdemeanor. It's a high crime, not a crime. So high crime goes back to ancient British law and you really have to hit the old, dusty history tomes going way back as to what a high crime and misdemeanor is. It is not a criminal act. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It is basically a gross abuse of power that oppresses the people, deprives them of their liberty, or so uh, is such an abuse of power that it threatens the actual functioning of a democratic system. That's what the term is. And during the Nixon impeachment, there were three articles of impeachment. One was basically sounded, if you will, in criminal law. In other words, the obstruction of justice, uh, the cover-up, that was really the, the article of impeachment. It didn't, wasn't written as an indictment, but it could have been an indictment. The second article had actually more support and was broader. And that was what we called the abuse of power. And some of the uh, abuses you will, will sound very familiar. One of them was illegal wiretaps. President Nixon, as a result of uh, outgrowth of the Cam uh, protests and leaks about the Cambodia bombing, uh, decided unilaterally and illegally to order the wiretaps of White House staffers and journalists. He claimed, I think we've heard an echo of this today, that this was done for national security purposes. Of course, the examination of this turned out that maybe it started, one or two of them, for purposes of trying to find out about the leak, about the secret bombing of Cambodia. But they all turned into political exercises because wasn't it nice to have information about a White House staffer who had left your staff and was now working for Edmund Muskie and therefore could tell you a lot about what Muskie was doing. So we had illegal wiretaps. We had also the creation of an enemies list. The political opponents of the president were subject to his direction, had their taxes audited because they had the temerity to say, um, we oppose the war, or we oppose this policy, or whatever policy it was. And he had an enemies list. And then, of course, the misuse of government agencies to advance a personal agenda, cover-up, as opposed to a governmental agenda, including the misuse of the CIA, and the FBI and other agencies of government. As I said, there was a huge bipartisan consensus on the committee and then in the country supporting the work of the committee and the vote on impeachment. I had written a, a resolution with respect to the bombing of Cambodia. It was not adopted by the House Judiciary Committee. The interesting thing about the bombing of Cambodia was that the President had never sought approval for it. The House of Representatives, although it had supported the war, the Congress, the House, and the Senate had supported the war in Vietnam through many resolutions 
of appropriation and many authorizations and money and so forth, there had been no authorization for any bombing, any military activity in Cambodia. The way the resolution was drafted was that it subverted the powers of Congress and our democracy by engaging in a military activity against a neutral country without the approval of Congress. The committee failed to adopt that. They never really investigated it fully. They didn't take it seriously, possibly because the chair of the committee understood that he needed a, uh, the support of the Republicans to have an impeachment, and there was enough support on the other articles. However, it was interesting that one of the reasons that Republicans gave, including former uh, Bill Cohn, who then became Secretary of Defense, was that we had passed a war powers resolution, and of course, the president would obey the war powers resolution. So that was the solution, even though what, if the president had, had really engaged in this conduct without telling Congress, and there was some question as to whether he told a few members of Congress, some of them, most of them were dead, so they couldn't say that they had been told or hadn't been told. Um, <laughs> very convenient, but that the problem would be solved by the war powers resolution. Within three years, most of them dead? Uh, they were pretty old, some of them, yes. In any case, here we have to fast forward to 2006, and we see, um, in my judgment, presidential misconduct that, in my mind, um, makes out what I would call a prima facie case of impeachment. That doesn't mean that there aren't arguments that might be raised against it, uh, or that there, and even strong arguments. Obviously, any impeachment effort that would be undertaken would have to give the president, as we had given to Mr. Nixon, the opportunity to rebut, respond, give different facts, give his interpretation of the law and the Constitution. But what we have now, I would say, is a president who has um, adopted Mr. Nixon's view, which is that as commander-in-chief in the interest of national security, he has the right to do as he wishes. The president has formulated this in many, many <laughs> forms and in many ways, and um, probably the most, I wouldn't say the most serious, because this concept underlies his approach to illegal wiretapping, to torture and detention, and to other issues that I'll raise with you. But basically his argument is that under Article Two, as Commander-in-Chief, Nobody can contain his powers. He alone can break whatever law there is in the interests of protecting the security of the American people as he defines it. So let's go, I'd like to examine the warrantless wiretaps issue first, but this issue will crop up as we examine uh, his actions in other areas. The President of the United States revealed on December 17th that uh, he had repeatedly ordered wiretaps that did not comply with what's called the uh, FISA law, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And initially he said, it was, he didn't even use the word cumbersome, we didn't really have the time. It was so, such an emergency, so urgent that we try to get this information that we didn't have time to comply with FISA. Well, of course, that argument is a blatant untruth because the FISA law takes into account emergencies. What FISA says is, that if you want to conduct a warrantless wiretap, you can do that. The president can do that. In an emergency, you can do that. You don't have to go to a court. But in three days, you have to go to a court. 
You can start it if there's an emergency and you have to move right away. You just start it, and then later you go to the court and you explain why you need to do it. He said, I don't have to go to a court. I don't have to obey this law. Let's understand where the law came from. Very important to understand the background of the FISA law. FISA was enacted in response to two separate events, the Watergate experience, where we saw President Nixon ordering illegal wiretaps, claiming that they were national security, and they weren't. And secondly, the revelations of domestic surveillance, illegal domestic surveillance by the FBI and CIA and other agencies of government. And Congress said, look, we have to strike a proper balance. We have to, on the one hand, allow wiretapping in the interest of national security. There will be instances in which it's necessary. I was DA, and there were instances in which I believed that we needed wiretaps for, I wouldn't call it domestic, uh, domestic security, but normal crimes. But we had to prepare a wiretap application and go to court and get approval. That was fine. That was a perfectly acceptable process. So the, the Congress said in, in 1978, we are going to prevent the abuses we saw by requiring a president to go to a, a special court. You don't have to go right away. You can go three days later. And why will the court make a difference? Because if you have to answer to an independent body, it does restrain the most egregious conduct. Now, that court is not exactly a court that's given any administration a hard time. They have approved over 10,000 wiretap orders, and I think they've only, I think a handful, maybe four or five, have they <coughs> turned down. So this is not a court that says no, but still the existence of an independent body is in itself a check. Because you can't go there and say, hey, my staffer just left to work for John Kerry. I want to wiretap him or her. You can't do that. Not even that court will allow it. So it is a check, and it came out of an experience of lawless wiretapping. On the other hand, it does give huge leeway to any president to wiretap in good faith and when there's a basis to the court. But President Bush said, I don't have to obey this law. Why? He gave two arguments. One is a silly argument, and the other is a dangerous argument. The silly argument is that Congress overrode the FISA law when it gave him authority to invade Afghanistan. Hello? There's nothing in that uh, authorization, the so-called force resolution, that says anything about wiretapping. Number two, if you look at the legislative history, which uh, Senator Daschle wrote about in the Washington Post, he said the administration came and wanted specifically powers to act in the United States. And we said no. They wouldn't have asked for that if they already had the power uh, under the force resolution. They wanted to amend the force resolution to give them specific powers to act in the United States. That was denied. Nobody takes that argument seriously, not even the Republicans in the Senate. The second argument is the more dangerous argument, and that is I'm commander-in-chief. Under Article 2, I'm commander-in-chief, and therefore, stop me if you can. But you can't because nobody can contain my powers. What I do in the best interest of the American people, I can do. This is a, um, a total rejection of the basic concept of checks and balances in our Constitution. 
we learned this in the third grade or second grade or fourth grade, but around that time, the three branches of government, executive, legislative, judiciary, judicial, and they check and balance each other. We don't have a system of unlimited powers. And when I was reading um, a case involving Harry Truman, which is illustrative of this point, I came across a, a very interesting quote from Justice Jackson. And uh, you may recall that uh, during the Korean War, um, there was a strike at the steel mills, and Harry Truman said, mm, we need steel to make bullets and guns and tanks and all the things we need for a continuation of this war. I'm going to take over the steel plants and keep them running so that we can fund the war. Uh, not fund, but we can keep the uh, armaments moving for the war. And so we did. And the Supreme Court said, no. Yes, you're commander in chief. And Jackson said, just remember, you are commander in chief of the Army and the Navy, but you are not commander in chief of the country. Big difference. Big difference. And it's worth remembering. But this is a president who thinks he's commander in chief of the country. And it's really interesting to note that even as commander in chief, and this, this is a very complicated discussion, and I probably don't have too much time, so I'm going to go quickly. There's no such a thing as any branch of government having total say over any part of our actions, because if you look, go back to George Washington and the uh, Indian wars that he was fighting, we didn't have, we had barely a standing army at that time, maybe a few hundred soldiers. He, need, he couldn't fight the Indians with a few hundred soldiers. He needed more soldiers. What's he going to do? Conscript them himself? No, he had, got to go, he had to go to Congress and say, I need more soldiers. I can't fight this war without your help. It was totally intertwined. And indeed, if you look at the Constitution, you will see that Congress has given an important and critical role in a war, one with respect to the raising of troops, two with respect to um, uh, funding the war, appropriations, and three, the power to declare war. I will just say that the framers of the Constitution had a specific intent when they gave Congress the power to declare war and gave Congress these other powers. The specific intent was to make it harder for a president to take the country into war. It wasn't just the normal checks and balances, oh, well, we don't want Congress, you know, they'll spend too much money, so if we have two branches and we have the president with a veto and <coughs> You know, they didn't have something specific in mind. They didn't say, oh, you know, there's going to be pork barrel in the Mississippi uh, Valley over something or other. They, that was just a general theory. But here they had the experience, a historical experience with, an ex with a king. They said, kings, take us into war. If we give some of the power to Congress, that will check it. That will be a check. That was their objective because they said Congress, they're closer to the people. If people are conscripted, or more important, if taxes are raised to pay for the war, they have to respond to it. So there's going to have to be a good reason. And they're going to be the ones who have to explain to the constituents. So therefore, we're putting Congress into this war-making and war-operational mode. We can't give it only to the president, because we've been there with the king. We don't want that. OK. So that's the president's argument with regard to uh, wiretapping. I think he's wrong. With regard to the war in Iraq, the deceptions, as we know now, I mean, the president went to war saying two things to the American people. One, two basic things. One is that um, 
there was a mushroom cloud and weapons of mass destruction, and if we didn't act now, we were going to have the mushroom cloud right here. And the second was Saddam and al-Qaeda were in cahoots, and therefore we were justified in, in attacking them because it's kind of um, they attacked us, so we're allowed to attack them. The President's answer is now that he, he relied on his bad intelligence, Some, you know, someone else's fault. But the fact of the matter is, as we now know, there was no intelligence showing that Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda were in cahoots. And with regard to the issue of nuclear weapons, there was very good intelligence from some American agencies. It's true the CIA was um, believed that, based on one engineer, that the aluminum centrifuge tubes were for uh, nuclear weapons purposes. But the other agencies of the U.S. government did not. The Department of Energy, which is responsible for running our nuclear weapons program, said these are not for um, weapons, nuclear weapons production. The State Department said the same, and the International Atomic, agency, uh, International Atomic Energy Agency said the same. So there was perfectly good information available to the President. He ignored it. We have some indications that not only was, were these deceptions um, uh, we have some indications that these exceptions were, in fact, lies, that the, that the administration knew that it was lying. Uh, there's the infamous Downing Street memo, which indicates that the uh, – this is a report that was made to Prime Minister Blair. There was an official record made in England of this report to Prime Minister Blair in which it was said that um, this is an official British document saying that the U.S. government, this is July 2002, the U.S. government has made the decision to go to war. President Bush has already made the decision, and they are fixing the intelligence around the policy. In other words, they're making up the intelligence to support the decision to go to war. You also have the statement in, uh, by Mr. Card in August of 2002 <coughs> that uh, we don't roll out a new product in August. We roll it out in September. Well, if there's an urgency about war, I mean, if, if we are in imminent danger of a mushroom cloud, we have to wait a few months so we can properly market it. I mean, this is absurd. Okay, so that's, that was the argument. And then, of course, there's a statement by Mr. Wolfowitz. I, I, sorry, I forget the exact details, but basically they relied on um, the WMD argument, because that was a good argument to, it was a credible argument to sell to the American people. So the fact of the matter is that a president who lies, in my opinion, to the Congress of the United States and the American people about taking this country to war subverts one of the critical powers of the Congress, which is to decide whether or not we should go to war, and secondly, attacks the very basis of our democracy, which is that the American people should have the facts from which to make a reasoned judgment whether to go to war or not, and affect and join with Congress in helping to make this decision. This is a, a, an enormous assault on our democratic process, and I believe a, uh, an impeachable offense, a high crime misdemeanor. I'll just say about torture, the, pre the President of the United States, at the very least, knew about torture or mistreatment of detainees that was being committed by Americans. Um, he knew this because he was advised, we know in writing, by Mr. Alberto Gonzalez, who was his White House counsel. Um, he knew that this conduct could violate U.S. law. There's a U.S. law called the War Crimes Act. It's not an international law. 
It has nothing to do with any foreign country. It's our own U.S. law. Torture and inhuman treatment of detainees is a federal crime, like bank robbery. And if the people die, there's a death penalty, which means there's no statute of limitations. So Mr. Bush, he's involved for the rest of his life, could be subject to prosecution, as well as the rest of them. Mr. Bush was advised about the applicability of the War Crimes Act to conduct by American officials in Afghanistan or in connection with the invasion of Afghanistan. His reaction to that was, let's insulate the people who are doing these acts from criminal liability. Not, let's stop it. Not, oh my god, this is terrible. How do we keep them from getting prosecuted? You know, it's like one of these conversations that I had wiretaps on. I mean, how do we get away with this, boss? Um, so that's what they did. That's one of the reasons. There were two reasons given for reducing the um, applicability of the Geneva Conventions to the war to al-Qaeda and Taliban. One reason was that they were quaint, outdated, and the other was, boss, we've got to reduce the probability or the likelihood of prosecution. If we say Geneva doesn't apply, then the War Crimes Act doesn't apply. Hello, we now can commit these acts with impunity. However, the very fact that he was advised and the very fact that he didn't stop, maybe he actually knew, ordered other things, but the fact that he was advised and that he didn't stop it is a violation of U.S. obligations under the Geneva Conventions. It's a violation of the War Crimes Act itself. It may be a violation of the Convention Against Torture, which the United States signed. It may be a violation of the federal statute that makes it a crime to engage in torture. Um, the President's answer to this, although nobody has actually gone so far as to say that he is complicit in doing these things, but the answer that his Justice Department people have given him is that I am Commander-in-Chief and I am not bound by the War Crimes Act of 1996 federal statute. I am not bound by the anti-torture statute. I am not bound by the Geneva Conventions. I am commander-in-chief, not just of the country, I think of the world. <laughs> um, and I think that, therefore, we are in, and our liberties are in, tremendous danger. He has basically thrown down the gauntlet to the Congress, to the American people, and said, I am commander-in-chief. I can break whatever law I want, and you stop me. And it's up to us. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and, for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org.